Now, this morning we want to continue our study here in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. We're going to be looking at the tail end of chapter uh, 8, and then we'll be moving on into verse 9, or chapter 9 through verse 5. So, uh, let's stand together in honor of the Word of God. We're going to read a few of these verses beginning uh, in chapter 8 and verse 16, okay? Should be some <clears throat> words up on the screen as well. I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. We are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. And what is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering which we administer in order to bring honor to the Lord himself and to show the eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you with thanksgiving this morning. <clears throat> we thank you for your greatness. I just want to thank you for the people of God. Uh, what a joy it is to be able to, to worship together and to lift you high and to uh, be able to be a blessing to our community. Uh, Lord, you are so good to us. We are so undeserving of all that you have done for us. And we want to just take a moment and say, Lord, we love you. We honor you. We want to keep on living for you with all of our hearts. And I pray that as we again study uh, this particular passage, that we will understand how not only are we as givers uh, to be uh, known for our integrity and our ethics, but as we receive the gifts that God's people graciously give, uh, we are also to exercise uh, diligence and uh, integrity and uh, accountability in a way that honors and glorifies you. So Lord, guide our thoughts. And uh, again, thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you mean to us, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You and I today are living in a culture which has lost its ethical direction. We hear a lot today about holding higher standards. We hear a lot today about uh, being transparent and ethical. And yet our world today, as we take a look at it, uh, in a broad perspective, our world is mired in unethical patterns which have been fueled in part by the humanistic philosophy which says that absolute truth does no longer exist. If absolute truth no longer exists, there's no standard, there's no truth standard, there's no way you can uh, teach ethics or teach ethical behavior. As one National Education Association teacher put it, quote, no one has the right to tell any person what is right or wrong, unquote. Obviously, that teacher believes that children are to decide for themselves 
what is right, what is wrong, whether cheating, stealing, or harming others is right or wrong. If there's no truth standard, then anything goes. A number of years ago, Michael Josephson issued an interesting forecast in the early 1990s with a book entitled The Ethics of American Youth, a report on the values and behaviors of the 18 to 30 generation. This is a number of years ago. That research revealed he saw a time as we head into the 21st century, the century we are now living in, when high school students who cheated on exams become jet airplane mechanics who falsify maintenance reports. He saw multitudes of young applicants claiming degrees they don't have to take jobs for which they're unqualified. And this was his conclusion. Quote, today's young generation lacks commitment to core moral values such as honesty, respect for others, personal responsibility, and civic duty, unquote. Now, this should not surprise us because we as adults have not been very good models. You take a look at what's going on in the political world today. In the early 90s, the Justice Department prosecuted more than 1,200, think of it, 1,200 public officials for ethical failure. The Senate Ethics Committee in Washington is one of the most active committees trying to discern truth in a cesspool of deceit and deception. And all you have to do is tune in to the local news and discover that almost on a daily basis there's some other lawmaker that is a lawbreaker that is under investigation because of ethical violations. Most recently, we've seen again Senator Robert Menendez under investigation for the second time in eight years for <coughs> uh, ethics violations uh, and the reception of some uh, million dollars worth of gifts and gold bars and lavish gifts. He received all of that in return that he would do political favors for those that gave him all of this. It's sad that so many of our lawmakers today get bought off by these special interest groups and fall into ethical traps. You look at the business world today and students across America, by a two-to-one margin believe that businesses are generally unethical. 61% of the workforce lie to their bosses. 72% of the bosses lie to their employees. Only 31% of Americans believe that honesty is really the best policy. You take a look at what's happened in the financial world back in the 80s. There was widespread uh, savings and loan scandals that rocked the market, uh, affected many, many people. You had this individual by the name of Ivan Boski, who was one of the Wall Street's most relentless buyers and sellers. When he was speaking to a UCLA School of Business class in 1988, he boasted that greed is good. He could never get enough. He manipulated others. And even when his fortune reached 200 million, he didn't have enough. But his actions pale in insignificance when you think of Bernie Madoff and the thousands of investors that were 
uh, snookered with his $65 billion Ponzi scheme that began in the 70s but was only revealed in the mid-2000s. And his investors lost thousands and thousands of money. Charities had to close because of all of this. Uh, Madoff was sentenced to 150 years in prison, and more recently he's passed away. But we seem to never learn. Most recently we have the founder of FTX, uh, Benjamin Fr- uh, Bankman Freed, who is facing uh, prison for his unethical dealings in the cryptocurrency scam, which affected almost every part of the market. We are living in times when ethics has been discarded and we live life on our own terms and kind of let the chips fall where they may. But the religious world is no better. A number of years ago, Richard Roberts, who was the president of Oral Roberts University, the uh, university his father founded, he had to resign uh, simply because he uh, mismanaged finances and misused donor donations. This is going on in so many different places. We've seen Christian celebrities succumb to pornography, to adultery, and still expect and continue in Christian ministry. We watch our sports heroes lie to grand juries about steroid use, sacrificing their Hall of Fame status on the altar of falsehood, lying, deception, and innuendo. In almost every sector of society, ethics has taken it on the chin. In fact, Patterson and Kim, in their eye-opening book, The Day America Told the Truth, conclude Americans across the board believe that our current political, religious, and business leaders have failed us miserably and completely. It's because for one reason or another, ethics has no longer been something that is cherished and valued. Now the word ethics is a very interesting word. It comes from a Greek uh, word which literally means a stall or a hiding place. The place you could go and find security. It was something you could depend upon. Ethics are standards which retain their value and bring a sense of well-being and peace to society. And when it comes to giving, not only our gifts to the Lord, but the management of those gifts, uh, ethics especially must be practiced within the church of Jesus Christ. Those that are charged with looking after the financial welfare of the church must be people of integrity, honesty, and truthfulness. We must go to the wall for ethical integrity, not only by the way in which we give, but also the way in which we manage the funds that God has given to us. It's interesting that not long ago, there was a denominational treasurer who decided he would take matters into his own hands And so he took all the money that had been stored away and he invested it in some uh, prominent places where he thought he would make money. The problem was all those places went belly up. He had done this without any kind of board authorization. He was hoping to make money for himself and for the denomination, but he was found guilty. In fact, $11 million is stolen from churches every year by volunteers and employees all across America. 
And no wonder when Paul talks about giving and he talks about the management of funds, he is counseling Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 9 to 10. He says, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men to ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So the scripture is very clear that not only are we to practice integrity by the way in which we give our gifts, but the organizations, the churches, the charitable organizations that we give our money to need to practice good, strong, ethical practices as well. Now, as we dig into this passage, it's very interesting that Paul speaks about the ethical standards of the giver, and he also speaks about the ethical standards of those who receive the gifts. First of all, he gives three principles Three ethical principles or standards of conduct for those of us who give to the Lord. First of all, and we talked about this uh, in detail last Sunday, he shared with us that when we give to the Lord, we need to honor the principle of integrity. Notice chapter 8 beginning at verse 10. And this is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have a desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. Now, as recipients of the grace of God, God gives to each one of us the privilege of giving grace gifts to Him. The problem at Corinth was they had promised to give a gift to the Jerusalem church uh, that had fallen on hard times. The Jerusalem church was the mother church that had helped spread the gospel throughout the empire at that particular time. But now they were going through hardship. And so Paul had shared this need with them way back, uh, almost a year previously, and they had been excited about giving. But somewhere down the line, they had allowed division, then they had allowed all kinds of other things to distract them from following through on what they had promised. And so you'll note here that he is saying to them, Now finish the work, verse 11, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. He wants them to do more than just lip service. He wants them to follow the principle of integrity. When we promise God we're going to do something, whether it's uh, giving him of our time, our talent, or our treasure, we need to follow through. So that's the first principle. The second principle is the principle of ability. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable to what one has, not according to what he does not have. God doesn't expect us to give what we don't have, but he does expect us to honor him with a portion of our increase of what he has given to us. He doesn't ask us to give what we don't have. He does ask us to give what he's blessed us with. In fact, the amount of our gift is not the most important thing. It's our heart attitude. We give according to our ability. We give according to willingness. And when we are giving grace gifts, we're not manipulated. 
we're not <clears throat> coerced. We do it because we love Jesus and because God's grace has changed our lives from the inside out. So he's talked about the principle of integrity, the principle of ability, and then lastly he talks about the principle of equality beginning at verse 13. He says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality as it is written, He that gathered much did did not have too much, and he that gathered little did not have too little. In other words, the principle of equality is simply this, that when we have need and we're aware of a need and God has blessed us, we want to share what God has given to us with those in need. Sometimes the flip side happens and we're in need and then we need to be gracious recipients of that which God has given to us. So the principle of equality is simply this, God honors not equal gifts, but he does equal honor equal sacrifice. And so our gifts may vary in terms of the amounts, but God wants us to give as he prompts us to give out of a loving heart because of his grace at work in our lives. So after he talks about these three principles for the givers, then he turns his attention to the way in which ethics are to be practiced in organizations that receive these gifts of money. First of all, he says, grace gifts must be practically arranged. Notice chapter 9 and verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements, put a circle around that word arrangements for the generous gift you have promised, then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Now, it's very interesting that Paul, throughout these two chapters, is expressing very specifically the need that existed within the mother church. He doesn't try to manipulate. He just says to the Corinthians, as he had done to the Macedonians, there's a need. He doesn't manipulate. He He doesn't do something like this. He doesn't say, well, you know, I want you to give a gift uh, to the uh, 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 Jerusalem church, and if you do, I'm going to send you one of my latest parchments. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, I'm going to send you a prayer cloth, or I'm going to send you a vial of oil from the Holy Land. I'm not going to do That's not how he operates. He just has been talking about the need that exists. He's not only clear in expressing the need that existed, but he sends Titus, notice, and two representatives to personally explain the situation to the uh, Corinthians because he doesn't want them to misunderstand his appeal in any way. Paul is very conscious not to do anything that would put a question mark on his motivation or his uh, desire that they fulfill this commitment that they had made more than a year ago. Now, there are three reasons why Paul chooses to be up front and above board and appealing to the Corinthians. This is the second time he's done it, and there are several reasons. First of all, he wants to avoid misleading the Macedonians. Look at verse 3. 
I'm sending the brothers. You need to put a circle around the word brothers because these are representatives that came from the Macedonian churches. I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. It's very interesting. We talked about this last week that after Paul had shared this initial need uh, with the uh, Corinthians, they were all excited about doing it. In fact, he had appealed to the Macedonians on the basis of the Corinthians' excitement about participating. He said, these folks are excited about participating, and that was motivation for the Macedonians to participate. The Macedonians did participate. They did so even under very difficult circumstances, but the Corinthians had fallen behind. And he doesn't want uh, anyone in the Jerusalem church to feel that there's been some kind of a misleading of the Macedonians. Uh, He wants to make sure that the Corinthians follow through on that which they had committed. Notice he says of the Macedonians, they urgently, chapter 8 and verse 4, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege in sharing in this service to the saints. So he's very concerned that since the Macedonians have been touched by what Paul had communicated about the need that existed in the Jerusalem church and about the Corinthians' original zeal, he wants to make sure now that they follow through. He does not want to mislead the Macedonians. After all, he had praised the Corinthians for how they had responded. But if they don't follow through, then everything would have been for naught. And therefore, he's very careful to specifically request that this generous gift be given to back up their original zeal. Number two, he wants to avoid embarrassment. Now, put yourself in Paul's shoes. He's been talking up the Corinthians. He went to these Macedonian churches and said, hey, you know, the brothers there in Corinth, they're all excited about this. They've stepped up to the plate. They're getting ready to give this generous gift. But it still hadn't happened. And so everything that he said about them is a great big question mark. If the Macedonians should come to him and inquire about the Corinthians' performance, he would be embarrassed. Notice in verse 4, he says, of chapter 9, For if the Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we not to say anything about you would be ashamed of having been so confident. He is concerned that uh, if they don't follow through, he's going to have egg on his face, and they're going to have egg on their face because they haven't followed through on the commitment that they have made. And then number three, he wants to activate their spirit of generosity. Notice, he says in verse 5 of chapter 9, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not one grudgingly given. Number two, grace gifts must be properly administered. It's very interesting. You see this in chapter 8, beginning at verse 19 and 20. Paul says, What is more, he that is uh, Titus, or these brothers, excuse me, it was not Titus, he appoints Titus in verse 16, but now they appoint other brothers. Notice, 
another brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. Paul made it very clear that he didn't want anything to do with handling the funds. His role was to stir them up so that they would remember their commitment and follow through, but he did not want to be involved in any of the management of the funds. He completely keeps his hands off any of the money that the Corinthians were going to give. Others could take care of that. You see, Paul was a very wise leader. He didn't get involved in the financial matters of the church in terms of how the gift is administered. John Calvin put it this way. He said, quote, There is nothing which is more apt to lay one open to sinister imputations than the handling of public money. And since he anticipates that the Corinthians are going to respond to his plea and give a very generous offering. He, he does not want, want to have any hint at impropriety that any of this generation would come to him rather than go as it was designated to the Jerusalem project. Now, unfortunately, many ministries and ministers have been undermined because they haven't followed this one simple Simple principle. <clears throat> as leaders, as pastors, we are not to be involved in any of the way in which money is distributed. That is, you leave that up to the financial people of the church. We have stories after stories after stories of ministries that no longer exist simply because that principle has not been followed. That is one of the most important principles you can ever have. That as a leader, you can encourage people to give, but you are not involved in the administration of how that money is handled. You keep your hands off the money, and you never siphon things for your own advantage. Again and again, if you take a look at what's gone on in some of these major ministries, it's, it's astounding to me how many get involved in this and siphon off money that has been given for God's purposes. They would just follow this biblical principle that Paul is saying, I'm encouraging you as your pastor, but I'm not going to handle the funds. I'm going to have others handle the funds so there's no hint of any impropriety on my part. Now, notice, he does not want to do anything that would cause the Corinthians to suspect him of having wrong motives. Look at verse 20 of chapter 8. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. He is wanting to make sure that the Corinthians know that he doesn't have his hands in the pot. Okay? <laughs> he is he's very concerned about this. And verse 21 is even stronger. For we are taking pains to do what is right, notice, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. And after being honest about his own personal intentions and letting them know that, that he's not going to be handling any of these funds, that someone else is going to handle them and administer and make sure that those funds get to the Jerusalem church. After being honest, 
he introduces three trusted individuals who are going to manage the funds, collect the funds, and make sure that the funds are appropriately distributed. First of all, he introduces Titus, verse 16. He says, I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. Titus, you'll remember, was a dear friend of the Apostle Paul. And back in chapter 7, when Paul was going through all kinds of difficulties, it was Titus who came alongside him and refreshed him. And in the process, he also refreshed the Corinthians. And so there was a deep bond already between Titus and the Corinthian church. And and that's really all he needed to appoint. But to avoid any tinge of deceit, he asks Titus to bring along with him two other brothers, not from Corinth, but from the Macedonian church, to again supervise the collection and the distribution of these funds. So notice in verse 18, and we are sending along with him a brother, put a circle around the brother, who is praised by all the churches. He's talking about this brother does not come from the Corinthian church. He comes from the Macedonian church. He doesn't have any interest at all in getting involved in the funds that are being collected for the Jerusalem church for this service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the, he was chosen by the Macedonian churches. You see, this, this is how Paul sets things up so in that in the administration of money, he is very, very clear that he's not personally involved and he is involving others who he trusts to manage the funds and these have come from people that have already given generously on behalf of the Jerusalem ministry. Not only does he appoint one brother, in verse 19, you go down to verse 22, in addition, we are sending with them our brother, who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous, and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. So here's the beauty of all this. Paul has been stirring up their gifts. I I want you to honor the Lord with your giving. The Jerusalem church is in need, but I want you to know I'm not going to be involved in collecting it and distributing it. I'm having Titus and two trusted brothers from the Macedonian churches to oversee and to take care of the administration of this gift. You see, the proper administration of funds is just as important as the giving of our resources to the Lord. In other words, there has to be balance. We as givers need to give with ethical integrity, and they need to be administered by not having those in leadership like pastors or staff people. The finances of the church need to be handled solely by those that are financially prepared and equipped that that can take care of it so there is no uh, uh, no way in which uh, a pastor or a staff person could get their hands on those kind of resources. Uh, I will tell you I have been around the barn long enough to know that these things are very very real. 
And uh, if people would just learn to follow biblical principles, a lot of the pain in churches uh, would, would not take place. So then the last thing he talks about in this passage is that grace gifts must be purposely accounted for. Uh, and he says in verse 21, he says, we want to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of others. The Apostle Paul was a man who was an accountable servant of the Lord Jesus. In Romans chapter 14 and verse 12, he writes, so each of us then will give an account of himself to God. The scripture declares that nothing in all creation is hidden from God, everything uncovered and laid bare before his eyes of him to whom we must all give an account. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13. It's interesting that as you study this, verse 21 is almost a direct quotation from Proverbs 3, verses 3 and 4. Let faithfulness never leave you, and you will win favor, and a good name in the sight of God and man. You will notice that those who administer the gift bring an honor to Christ. You see this in verse 23. For our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honor to Christ. I grieve over what has happened in so many churches today where these kind of principles have not been followed. And I'm not going to name them, but they are major ministries where Individuals for the wrong purposes have what we call slush funds on the side to do whatever they want to do. When I was district superintendent, I had to deal with some of this kind of stuff. It just grieves me that pastors many times do not understand what Paul's saying about make sure you keep your hands off the finances of the church. So important. I'm eternally grateful for my dad. My dad <clears throat> was a pastor for 70 years. When I entered the ministry, dad gave me a little bit of advice. He said, John, he said, never get involved in the finances of the church. Leave that to those that God has gifted to administer and take care of things. He said, you preach the word, you do everything you possibly can to point people to Jesus, but you leave the administration of money, the collection and distribution of money, leave that to those who have been specially designated to take care of those funds. You keep your hands off the money in the church. Uh, I will will tell you, that has been a principle that I have followed over and over and over again. And it's something that I value. You see, all of us are sinful human beings. And 
when we get ourselves in positions, and Paul was very clear not to do that, he would not get himself in a position where anyone could accuse him of mishandling this offering. That is a powerful statement that needs to be preached across this United States. If that was practiced, you would see churches flourish. I have seen way too many churches close because of embezzlement and other things that happened because leaders did not leave the financial collection and distribution to those who have background in finance and can properly administer and take care of the church. The bottom line is simply this. Ethics is very, very important. I want to be a man who can stand before God without any ethical compromise. I'm tempted just like every single one of you. The enemy, we are all sinful people. But we need to be very, very careful in handling the resources that God's people give to advance the kingdom of God. And that's the central message of what Paul is saying in these particular verses. He is saying, I'm going to make sure that I do nothing that would cause disrepute to come to the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm going to have others administer and arrange the gift. You see how smart Paul was? He sent these other people on ahead to arrange for this gift, to explain to them why Paul was encouraging them to give this additional gift. He does it so that they are going to be prepared and when the collection takes place, it's not something that they do grudgingly. They do with generosity because they have been prepared and they know it's going to be appropriately administered for the glory of God. Thank you, Jesus, for your goodness in our lives. Thank you for the privilege of giving to you. You have given us so much. You are the great giver. But we also have a responsibility as ministers of the gospel to follow Paul's incredible example here of making sure that others handle the funds, that we as your servants stay out of that mix. And we encourage God's people to flourish under the blessing of God as they give gifts, but the actual gifts are administered and cared for by others who have no involvement. So Lord, we just praise you and thank you for this instruction today. And I pray that you would keep our hearts tender toward you, that you would help us to be generous in our giving, but also to have the knowledge that here at East Bay, our gifts are handled with integrity. They're handled by those individuals who maintain complete confidentiality. We don't look at what people give. We have no desire for that. 
Our desire is to simply lift up Jesus and then to encourage all of us to give as you have blessed us and to do so in a willing spirit with the confidence that our gifts will be properly administered and arranged as Paul has instructed these three men outside the church to take care of it for the glory of God. So Lord, help us to follow your instruction and to follow your leadership in every dimension of the life of our church. We'll praise you forever in Jesus' name. Amen.